can、um, follow it from the Pew Bible on page 598. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proof right when you speak, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare Your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take part in burnt offerings. Sorry, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, You will not despise. In Your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thanks, Christine.、Um, perhaps you'd like to turn around, say hello to the people in front of you, behind you, and I'll go and get myself set up, and I'll call you back in just a moment. I can see a few children here this morning, and I want to ask you, children, firstly, if you've ever had to make an apology, you know, to say some, say sorry to someone because you did something naughty.、Uh, did your mum or dad find out what you did, and they made you apologise, and then you had to go and ask for forgiveness? They, they do this because they want you to get along with your brothers and sisters or whoever else you might have offended. See what really matters to your parents. Is that the relationship that is broken is restored? And maybe you're a teacher or a student at school, and maybe you've had a fight with someone. And、uh, I was wondering if your teacher has come up and they've used what's now called restorative practice. Your teacher would have asked you some questions about what happened, who's affected, 
What can you do to make things right? And how can you stop the fighting? Well, what really matters in the restorative practice, as they call it these days, is that the relationship between the two students is restored. And apparently if you ask the right questions, you should be able to stop the fighting. Last year we had a marriage seminar here at church. Some of you, you might have gone to the, the marriage seminar. And what we learnt, if a husband and wife, if there's some sort of conflict, we learnt about the seven A's of an apology. And the seven A's go like this. Address everyone involved. Avoid ifs and buts and maybes. Admit specifically what you've done. Acknowledge the hurt. Accept the consequences. Alter your behaviour and ask for forgiveness. Now, the next day I was driving home with my family and um, I could see just in front of me that there was, there was a blue-tongued lizard on the road and I just swerved slightly out of the way, slightly onto the other side of the road and swerved back onto our lane. And my wife thought that I was going to smash into the car that was about three miles coming towards us in the other direction. Anyway, and the children and myself, we pointed out that that was probably an overreaction to my little swerving so that I missed the lizard. Anyway, and Jenny thought, oh, I've done the wrong thing. And so she addressed everyone in the car, she apologised to everybody for her, her unnecessary outburst. She didn't say if and but and maybe. She admitted specifically what she did. She acknowledged that we may have been hurt by her outburst. She said she would accept any consequences as a result of her outburst. She said, I'm going to try to alter my behaviour and she asked us all for forgiveness. It was a very thorough confession and apology. (laughs) And what really matters here is that the relationship is restored by going through the seven steps of confession. And so we can see that from an early age we're taught the importance of confessing and apologising, of trying to restore broken relationships when we've done something wrong. And it's because we don't want to live with ongoing, unresolved conflicts in our lives, do we? When you know it's your fault that you've done something wrong, how do you feel? You feel miserable, you feel wretched and unclean. It can eat away at you. We don't want to be cut off from other people. We want relationships because they're important. And if our relationships with people are important, we don't want to be separated from them. But how much more important, how much more serious is it when our relationship with God is broken? And this is what we can see here in David's prayer in Psalm 51. He's done something really disgraceful. He's committed adultery. He's organised someone's murder. He's tried to cover it all up and he knows because of what he's done, he deserves to be cut off from God. And if you were in David's situation, what would you do? How would you pray? Well, let's have a look at what David does pray. And before we actually look at the words of this psalm, can you imagine how he felt? He must have felt like total filth. He's disgusted with himself for what he's done. He would have been feeling like a total failure. He's God's chosen king and he's been blessed with just about every imaginable privilege and yet he's abused this position of power. I was was talking with someone recently and they asked me, what is the test to show what kind of person someone really is? 
And I said, oh, well, you, you put them under pressure, you put them in a difficult situation and you see how they react. And he said, well, I don't think so. He said, you give someone power and you see how they act and you see what they do with it. And if that's true, then David failed this test of power and then used his power to cover up all his actions. But now he's been exposed and he feels ashamed and he knows that he deserves to be cut off from God. So what does he do? Well, he cries out for mercy because he wants to get rid of this filth. It's, it's always with him. It's like a bad stain that he just can't wash out. And he knows what he's done is a shocking offence against God and he can't do anything himself to make himself clean. He doesn't come up with excuses anymore. There's no more cover-up. He's completely honest in admitting his sin against God and he's fully responsible for his own actions. He says that the sin is mine. Look what it says in verses 1 to 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. One of the first words that little children seem to to learn is mine. Even the seagulls in Finding Nemo, they could say mine. It must be easy to say if little kids and even seagulls can say it. But saying mine can be really hard when it comes to our own sin. Our natural response is to distance ourselves from our sin. But David's heart has been broken and and he confesses that the sin is mine. And David also confesses that it is something, the sin is something that's part of his nature. He's not making excuses for what he's done. He's just admitting that he's helpless. He can't cure himself. David sinned not because he didn't have enough friends to keep him accountable or that he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. He sinned because there's something wrong with his heart. David admits that the very core of his nature, it's corrupt and he can't do anything about it. But he also knows that God demands integrity and faithfulness and an upright character, things that David now knew that he lacked. Look at verses 5 and 6. This is what it says. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the innermost part. What really matters to God is David's heart. So what does David do next? The next thing we need to ask is what, where does he turn? He turns to God. Couldn't David have just gone to Bathsheba and Uriah's family and earnestly begged for their forgiveness and everything would have been okay? Why does David say in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's true. David has sinned shockingly against Bathsheba and Uriah. There's no question of that. And it's right that when we offend someone, we confess our wrong and our sin and we ask for forgiveness. But David knew that his sin was primarily against God. God is really the offended party. 
sin is an attack on God himself. It's, a direct, it's the direct opposite to all that is good in the character of God. David has broken God's moral law in his actions, in his attitude and in his nature. David knows that he stands guilty before God who will ultimately stand in judgement before him and his judgement will be right. Verse 5 reminds us of this. It says, Surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And you are justified, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David turned to God because God is his judge. So we can see that David's heart was broken when he saw his sin. David turned to God because his heart was broken and he knew that God was his rightful judge. But what can God do for David? Is there any hope for David? Well, one thing that David knows for certain is that God can clean the filthy blackness of his sin. He knows that his heart can be made clean and pure. God's the one who can change David's heart with all the ugliness of its sin into something pure and clean. It says in verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 10 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Isn't it great when we know for certain that when something's dirty, it can be made clean again? But recently we came home from a few days' holiday and our pool had turned green. And the the pool maintenance lady, that's my wife, she, um, she said, It will be perfectly clean in 24 hours. She was that confident of it. She put in a few chemicals and some salt and the next day it's perfectly clear, crystal clear and that's the kind of certainty that God knew that God would clean his filth when he came to God with a broken heart. And David also knows that God can remove the awful guilt that's always before him. He feels the weight of his terrible sin. He's disgusted by what he's done and his sin its constantly on his mind. It's blazoned on his conscience and he's being crushed by knowing that what he's done. It's such a great offence to God. But he knows that God can change this. And we can see that in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And down further in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Can you imagine how this must have given David hope and relief? He knows that he deserves to live with the guilt and shame of what he's done. He knows he deserves to be cut off from God. But God can turn all of that around. Have you ever lost something that's really precious to you? You feel terrible when it's gone. But how good is it when you find it? It's like the best day ever, isn't it? You know that you thought you'd never see it again. And then you have it back. God can restore the joy and gladness of his salvation when our hearts are broken. And David also knows that God will not keep bringing up his past record of sin. He prays in verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Don't you hate it when some stupid thing you said in the distant past is always brought up on particular occasions? And given that I've done and said many stupid things, this happens to me quite a lot. But do you think that when David appears before God, 
God is going to say, oh yes, King David, oh you're the one who did this and did that and did that. No, David knows that God can blot out all his iniquities and he won't bring bring them up against him anymore. And David feels like God has every right to cut off his relationship with him. You can sense his fear. He knows that this is what he deserves. He knew that God had taken his Holy Spirit from the previous king, King Saul. He'd done some pretty bad things himself. But David has done far worse than Saul. So surely if God has taken his Holy Spirit from Saul, his special anointing from Saul, he should also take it from David, shouldn't he? That's why he says in verse 11, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Saul had completely rejected God. He refused to humble himself before God and confess his sin. And David knew what a terrible thing it was to be cut off from God. But he also knew that God could restore his relationship with him if his heart was broken. David's heart had been broken. He's recognised his sin. He's turned to God. He knows that God can turn everything upside down. And so how does David respond to knowing this? Well, he commits himself to a life of change, of service, of thanksgiving, of praise. He's going to be a witness for what God has done for him. He's going to let other people know that God is a righteous and merciful judge who won't turn people away when they turn to him. He can wipe away their filthy stains of sin and clean them and because this he will praise him. That's what it says in verse 13. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David has learnt that when we sin against God, we can't approach him in a casual, uh, slack attitude, the way that thinking that our sins aren't serious. We can't approach him thinking that some sort of animal sacrifice will appease him if our hearts aren't changed. David knew that we can turn to him only when we're crushed by our sin, when our hearts and our spirits are broken. Verse 16 and 17 say this. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David wasn't saying that God had done away with animal sacrifices. They were still a sign that payment for sin had to be made. And we can see that in verse 19 that God will delight in animal sacrifices, but only when they're brought to God with broken and contrite hearts. This is what matters to God. When David understood the weight of his sin against God, God will not despise anyone who has a truly broken heart. Well, you might be thinking that this was right for David to pray like this, but I haven't done anything like that, have I? He was really bad. I might be a little bit bad, but I'm not as bad as David. But are we really any different to David? This psalm reminds us that we are no different. We are all sinners who are guilty before God. We have a serious problem and we can't fix it ourselves. 
David knew his terrible sin and he acknowledged that this at the moment his sin was exposed. David admitted his problem straight off. When Nathan the prophet pointed at David and said, you are the man who has taken Bathsheba for yourself. You are the one who's organised to have Uriah killed. He confessed that he sinned against the Lord. We, we can try to deny our sin. We can try to justify our sin. We can try to forget about our sin. We can tell ourselves that our sins aren't really sins. But this psalm reminds us that what really matters to God is that God penetrates our hearts so that we can see and our hearts are broken and that we can see how serious a problem that sin is. The sin that can separate us from God, that can just keep eating away at us, that can take away our joy, it's real, it's serious and we can't do anything about it. But God can remove that filth. And while this psalm reminds us of our sin and our helplessness, it also offers us hope for everyone who's crushed by their sin. David knew that God would restore him if he approached God humbly with a contrite heart. He confessed his sin straight up. What's even more incredible is what Nathan said to David after his confession of guilt. Nathan said to David, and this is back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he said, the Lord has taken away your sin. How is that possible that God has taken away David's sin? That doesn't seem fair, does it? There hasn't been any sacrifice made, no payment. There were consequences for David's sin that affected him for the rest of his life. But now he stands before God forgiven and clean. This seems totally outrageous, doesn't it? David's committed adultery, he's tried about everything to cover it up, but God has taken away David's sin just like that. Is is God some sort of random judge who just lets people off whenever he decides or whenever he feels like it? It seems outrageous that God could forgive anyone who's capable of doing such things. And I'd share your outrage, except for one thing. In the book of Romans 3, chapter 25 and 26, the Apostle Paul, he understood this outrage and explains how God can be both righteous in punishing sin and merciful in forgiving sin. These are really important verses for understanding the Old Testament. And it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, God presented him, Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That's what 2 Samuel says God did. He had taken away David's sin. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, God's not just simply sweeping David's sin under the rug. Our outrage would be good if that's what he was doing. But God has seen down through the centuries Jesus Christ the one who would die in David's place so that David's faith in God's mercy and God's future redeeming work would unite David with Christ. David's sins are counted as Christ's sins and Christ's righteousness is counted as David's righteousness and God justly passes over David's sins. God is both just and the one 
who justifies. So if God can remove the filth of David's sin, wouldn't you want this for yourself? Wouldn't you want to be made clean and have your relationship with God restored? Wouldn't you want the weight of sin that paralyses you taken away? I want to urge you to pray that God would help you to see how how serious sin is. But also, how wonderful is the forgiveness that he can give through his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can do this for you. For many here today, we have experienced this wonderful gift in making us clean. And our greatest joy is knowing that what God has done for us, and he hasn't cut us off. But sadly, there are some Christians who don't know the joy of God's salvation. If you've been forgiven, if you've been given a newer, new, pure heart, if your sin has been blotted out and your relationship with God has been restored, wouldn't you want to live as a joyous Christian? Wouldn't you want to live in a way that reflects what God has done for you? Too many Christians live with secret sins and they keep being replayed over in front of their minds. They keep eating away at their conscience. If that's you, come to God with a broken heart, a broken and contrite heart, and he'll free you from whatever it is that has its hold on you. Some Christians, they, they find joy in all sorts of things, but when it comes to their relationship with God, there's little joy. Do you find joy in hearing people's testimonies when sinners turn back to God? That should give you joy. Do you know joy when you're in a Bible study and you, can just, you just know that you and the other people in your growth group, they're growing in their love for God, for each other, in their service for God? Isn't it a great joy when you see in our church young people teaching other young people about his word and about his salvation? Do you find real joy when God answers your prayers? Do you experience joy when you hear the gospel for the second time, the third time, for the thousandth time? Do you know that joy? Well, knowing that Jesus' death has paid the price for you and freed you from the weight of your sin. John Piper, he calls this a broken-hearted joy and that's what it should be. Our hearts need to be broken first so that we can experience God's joy. Finally, let me ask you one more question. When we sin against God, could we come to God with a prayer like David's? We're going to sing in just a moment this psalm and it's my prayer that as we come to God, he would break our hearts. That's what really matters to God, a broken and contrite heart. He won't despise this. But not only that, I pray that you would serve him and praise him with a deep joy the joy of his salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that we fail you and that our sin breaks your heart. I pray that you would each give us a broken and contrite heart as we recognise our sin against you. We thank you that through the death of your son, the Lord Jesus, we can experience your forgiveness, that you can clean every stain of our sin. And we also pray that you would transform our crushed bones to joy and that you help us to live joyful Christian lives praising you for your salvation. Give us a broken hearted joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.